All right, everybody, welcome again to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let us begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you decided and he agreed, though he was God, to become flesh as well as God, the God-man. And he did that in order that he could die for our sins on the cross. He was buried, and on the third day, he raised him again in a new resurrection body from the dead. And we thank you, Father, for all of that. We know now that he is ascended and he is seated at your right hand. You know also, Father, that he is our advocate as well as our Savior. We thank you for all these gifts we don't deserve. We also thank you for the Bible and for the Holy Spirit who indwells our hearts. And we also want to pray this morning, Father, for the saints, particularly those that are in need. I want to pray again this morning, Father, for Peter and Ruth, that they would um, be blessed in every possible way as they go through this very difficult time of trial for those two people. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah, I just remind and ask everybody to please to keep Peter and Ruth in their prayers. Um, Also, I want to let everybody know this morning that we are, of course, in person here and we're going to continue that. I pretty probably assumed that, but I just want to make sure this, you know, no, everybody knows that because we have been at times not having it in person, but we are going to continue to have it in person as well as on Skype. Um, so let's begin. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter seven, verse thirty seven. Gospel of John, chapter seven, verse thirty seven. As we typically do, the t- title of today's message comes from this passage. And it is, let him come to me and drink. The Lord Jesus says this on the eighth day, the last day of the Feast of Booths. And we're going to see this morning, last Sunday, we looked at the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Okay. Hold on a second. I've just got to share my screen. my goodness. I need to actually put the steps down one by one of the things that I need to do in order to have everything set up. Um, I was almost perfect today, except for one thing. I didn't share my screen. So I'm referring to these slides that you here in person can see, but the people on Skype haven't been able to see that. They haven't missed much, though. Let me go back there and uh, and continue right there, right there. Okay. And Mark will tell me in just a moment if it still hasn't worked. Hopefully it has. All right. So. All right. So, again, we are uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, starting in verse 37 this morning. And again, our title for today's message comes from this passage, as we as we typically do have the titles come from the passage that we're studying. This morning, it's words that Jesus Christ spoke on the eighth day of the great feast of booths. And we're going to see this morning the uh, how the background that we studied last Sunday about the feast of booths. And we went to the Old Testament where it was initiated in the book of Exodus. We also went to Nehemiah. When the, when the Jews came back from exile and they were built back and setting up the city of Jerusalem again and building the walls around Jerusalem, we see that they, re, they reinstituted the Feast of Booths, which hadn't been celebrated for hundreds of years. And then, and then, we, then we also saw in the prophets, how in the prophet Zechariah, how the, the feast in the future, you know, Zechariah is a prophet. He's looking forward to when Christ comes back and and they're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths then. And we're going to see this morning about that future, because that's really the perspective that we're going to take today. The Feast of Booths, what it's going to mean in the future when Christ comes back. OK, so that sets things up. Let's now read the passage again. It's in John chapter seven, starting in verse thirty seven. John chapter seven, starting in verse thirty seven. Now, on the last day. The great day of the feast, that's the feast of booths. Jesus stood and he cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. 
but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. On the eighth day of the feast, he stood up and he cried out. And this had never been, that's never happened before because the feast is organized and here's a participant in the feast. He's standing up and crying out. Very dramatic moment. I um, mean, we're going to see how this all ties in to what we what the Old Testament has to say about the Feast of Booths and what it meant for him to to identify that. All right. That's Mark. You're hearing that. It's not my bookie or anything. It's, it's Mark telling me that everything is copacetic on the Skype this morning. So thanks, Mark. So, again, Jesus standing up and crying out is tremendously significant. We're going to see this morning that it's that the words that he spoke when he spoke it all pointed to him as the Messiah. And certainly if there were any people who kept in mind what the Old Testament purpose of the Feast of Booth was, past, present, and future, then they would have been totally overwhelmed by what was happening and what they were hearing. All right, so again, last week we celebrated, I mean, we we, we looked at the scriptures that refer to the Feast of Booths. Quick, We're going to quickly summarize what we saw last week. The Feast of Booths is an eight-day celebration. It happened at, and still does at the time of the harvest in late September, early October, the month of Tishri in the Hebrew calendar. It was an eight-day celebration. The reason they celebrated it was to give thanks to the Lord for his abundant blessings. His abundant blessings, his, his blessings. We're going to see this, that that it was instituted. You've already seen this. It was instituted first in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. We're not going there this morning, but there we saw why did the Lord give the Jews, Israel, this feast of tabernacles, this feast of booths? And the answer is to remind them, the people every year about how the Lord had provided for their ancestors in the wilderness, when they were there for 40 years wandering around and they, they 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 needed all their needs to be taken care of by the Lord because they were in a wilderness. They didn't have access to food. It's, it's a desert like conditions. They didn't have access to water. They didn't know where they were going. OK, so so all of that the Lord had to provide. And, and the, so the Feast of Tabernacles is was, was instituted to remind the Jewish people of that, what the Lord had done for their ancestors in the, in the wilderness. So what what did he do? Well, he did a lot of things, but one of the things that he did is um, oops, missed one. Well, I guess I didn't put the slide up. <sighs> Bad boy. All right. One of the things he did, and I'll say it's not on this, is that when they were thirsty, he brought water to them. Now, if if you're in a desert and somebody brings water to you, um, that's a pretty significant thing. As a matter of fact, the Lord per- performed a miracle. So that they would have water. They were thirsty. They were rebelling against Moses. And the Lord told Moses, I want you to go to that rock of Flint and I want you to strike it once. And when you do, water will overflow. And it did. That's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter eight. We were there last week as well. Past and present, the present time, they were also being blessed. It also had to do with water. It was a time, this Feast of Booths in the autumn the harvest time, when they also gave thanks to the Lord for what he is providing for them at the time, which was, again, centered on water, the abundant water in the form of rain, which would then therefore guarantee that they would have a bountiful harvest. You see, even though they weren't in the desert, even though they were in the land and the land could be fruitful, they still needed rain. They still needed the Lord to provide water every year at the right time. So that they would have a great harvest uh, of grains and of wine, interestingly enough. Now, that's the past. And, it, and in terms of, um, of, of even the time of John, the present time of Jesus recorded in the book of John, Gospel of John. But also, as we go through the Old Testament and we get to the section on the prophets. Now, the prophets were uh, prophesying for hundreds of years, um, but they started to talk about the future and the messianic kingdom. And we've seen a lot of that in the book of Isaiah that we've been studying for over a year now in our Thursday evening Bible studies. We've seen how Isaiah, you know, time and again 
reminds them or prophesies and gives them a vision of what will be one day when the Messiah comes and sets up his kingdom. And so the, the Feast of Booths also anticipated the future, the past when when Moses struck the rock, the present when the when the Lord provided the rains for the harvest and now the future. And that future was anticipating the same thing, by the way, but blessings of all kinds that would come about in the future messianic kingdom. The nature would will I'll say will will be transformed. It's still future, and and there will be abundant harvests. Everyone will have everything that they need all the time. As a matter of fact, there'll be the rivers and streams will be running throughout the whole land. Tremendous blessings, and we saw that in Zechariah chapter fourteen. And at that time, once again, water will take center stage. As a matter of fact. Zechariah tells us at that time when the king is returned and he's ruling in Jerusalem, everybody in the world, all the nations, as well as Israel, will be called to celebrate the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem and, and honor and worship the king, who is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And as a matter of fact, if they don't, any nation does not go up to worship the king in Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths. Guess what? They won't have any rain for the next year. So, so even in the future, the whole focus is on rain and water, 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 more and more water. That's what we see everywhere we look when it comes to the Feast of Booths. Water for the thirsty. And this is what we have to understand this morning. Why do you need water when you're thirsty? Now, the thirsty ground needed water. That was the point of, of the harvest time and the rains. But men need water, too. And that was the point of what Moses did in the Old Testament. So the water is the focus of this festival. Um, and I want to show you a picture now. OK, well, now we're going to go back to how it was celebrated in the times of Jesus. And, and a matter of fact, now, this isn't in the Bible. OK, I want to sure you know that. OK, this is not this is not scriptural, but it is historic historical and it does accurately portray what was happening at the feast of booths at the time jesus went there um, and did what he was about to do on the eighth day of the feast in those days the the jews held a ceremony at dawn on each of the first seven days of the feast of booths it was a ceremony you can see it was a rather festive um ceremony the people are there it's it's dawn they have their lights they have the um, music and they have the priest and the priest is there they had they, they proceeded down to what's called the pool of siloam now that pool is very significant by the way in the gospel of john in chapter 9 jesus is going to be there and he's going to give sight to the blind we've already seen in, so this is a this is a really important pool in the gospel of john and it also turns out that at the time jesus was living and at the time he would go to this feast and stand up on the eighth day they were doing this every day at dawn first seven days of the feast they went the procession led by a priest went to the pool of siloam and he had a golden pitcher and he filled it with water and there was music and there was great rejoicing now i want to give you a picture of the likely location of the pool of siloam and then the temple by the way, it was about somewhere between a quarter mile and a half mile away. So if you can picture that that parade, if you will, and how it would turn back. And so there would be excitement that would be building as they did that. Then they returned to the temple. And when they returned to the temple, that this was at the prescribed time, which would have been the morning sacrifice. There were very specific, exact instructions from the Lord about the animal sacrifices that were to be performed every day of the feast. And so at dawn every day, they would bring this water, this 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 pitcher, golden pitcher with water. And they would come in at the same time that the uh, that the high priest was giving the morning sacrifices that had been ordained for that day. And so the water was then poured into a funnel. It would be on the west side of the altar. OK, so at that time, again, it was a time of celebration, great rejoicing. And it was dawn and the people were. Of course, they couldn't go in and see the altar. They had to stand outside because that was a place for only the high, the priest. And so, but it's still, they knew it was happening. They understood this connection between the sacrifice that was being offered and this water 
that 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 was representative of the Lord's provision for them, delivering them, saving them. Now, at that time, and we've seen this already in the Gospel of John in several places, the people uh, expected the Messiah to come very soon to Jerusalem when Jesus had his ministry in Israel, in Judah. The people that he came upon were expecting the Messiah at some point. If you recall in chapter six, when Jesus fed the five thousand with the five loaves and the two fish at that time, there were those after that miracle who understood the connection. Wait a minute. This is, as it were, the second Moses who is now coming and he is doing the same thing that the Lord did through Moses in it, it, when they were next. Well, not next. Well, they were in the wilderness, which is to feed them with bread from heaven. And Jesus in chapter six said, I am the real bread that came down from heaven. But before that, when he when he had done the miracle, there were some there who at that time wanted to have him become king. You see, they were expecting the king to come. They were expecting the Messiah to come and come very soon. And they also understood that when that happened, when that happened, when the king would come back, then rich springs of water would flow throughout the land. Of Israel. I'd like you to turn now to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 to 3. The prophet Isaiah was very much um, on the mind of the Lord, on the mind of John, and we can see uh, the, the footprints of, the, of Isaiah in the Gospel of John. And, and one of the things that Isaiah did um, at several points in his ministry um, was to was to prophesy. He had visions of the when the king would come, the messianic kingdom. Chapter 12, if you if you remember that far back and you've been in our Bible studies, that was one of those times. And uh, it was uh, it was after he, the, 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 the servant came on the scene the first time in chapter 11, the Lord Jesus, who would come and, and he would rule the people with justice. And, uh, and, and so right after that, then, then Isaiah has his vision of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. Let's read about it. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and song. They were singing songs at the dawn ceremony, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you, the people of Israel, you will joyously draw water. Water. That was a, that was a thing about the kingdom that will be a thing about the kingdom. You will jo- joyously draw water from the springs. And then what is he at the end? Of salvation. Of salvation. Now, that salvation certainly included the, the delivery, the final um, delivery and rescue of the nation of Israel from all the enemies. But as we know, it also points to the salvation of, of everybody who, available to everybody who believes in Christ. And we have water. We have joy. We have the springs of salvation. Now, on the feast, on the eighth day, that last day of the Feast of Booths, as you might imagine, at this point, that expectation, maybe the kingdom is coming. It, it rose to a fever pitch. In other words, at the, at the last day, they'd seen the, the, the procession every day. They had seen the water and they understood how it represented God's provision in the past and in the present and based on the prophets in the future. And they, they, they were hoping that that, that that future kingdom would come very soon. And so the eighth day, the last day of the feast, this expectation was probably at its highest point in the whole year. I want you to see another passage in Isaiah. Isaiah, go forward to Isaiah 55, verse 1. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Things are building. Isaiah in chapter 55 is talking about the people and how the how they will be taken care of in every way. But also it talks about the issue of salvation that need to be delivered from their sinfulness. Look at Isaiah 55 one. Ho. Everyone who thirsts come to the waters. 
and you who have no muddy money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. When they're in the kingdom, things will be so overwhelming in terms of the, the provisions that the Lord will make for their food and for wine and milk and everything else. That it will be, as a matter of fact, just about it would be free because there'd be so much of it. But he also here says you're, you're thirsty. If you thirst, come to the waters, plural. If you have no money, come buy and eat. Well, this is, again, the setting for the things that Jesus is about to say on that last day, that great day of the feast. So let's go back now. Let's go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37, where we where we left off a few minutes ago. John, chapter 7, verse 37. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters where the Lord will provide everything that you need. John 7, 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him would receive. For the spirit was not yet given at that time, because at that time, Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, Jesus knew this is kind of an obvious thing, but I want to bring you to this, this climax of the feast. And Jesus is there and he knew that he was the one. Isaiah was the prophet that talked about the overflowing water that would that would be there when the king comes back, the Messiah, and Jesus knew, I'm the one that Isaiah had spoken about. The things that he said, you're talking about the, the waters of salvation, that people would come and have their thirst quenched. I'm the one. The Feast of Booths now is drawn to a close. It's the last day. It would be the last Feast of Booths that Jesus would attend. Because six months later, he would go to the cross. It was drawing to a close, and then he saw the people, the festival, the parade, everything. And it moved him greatly. He saw the, the throngs of worshipers. And he knew that by sundown this day, they would be back on the road heading home. And he knew something else. Despite all that water, the water in the pool of Siloam, the, 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 the remembrance of the water in the, in the wilderness, the water of the rains that had been provided for their crops that year, the water in the future when the Lord comes back, when the king comes back. Despite all of that water, they were still thirsty, just like the people that Isaiah was prophesying about in chapter 55. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Only what Jesus knew and saw was that the thirst was, was, it was deep. It was deep, deep down in the inner man. It was a thirst that no well on earth could ever satisfy. This is what deeply moved the Lord at that time. Why? Because he knew here are these people, they're thirsty. And he knew that he's the one who could quench their thirst. And only he, only he. I'd like you to go to John chapter 4, verse 13. We'll be back in chapter 7 in a moment. Please go to John chapter 4. Verse 13. Because this isn't the first time we've encountered water, is it, in the Gospel of John? I mean, as a matter of fact, we encountered it in chapter 2 in the feast, uh, the, the wedding at Cana. There was water that Jesus transformed into wine. But also here in chapter 4, water takes center stage again. Jesus has come to the well and uh, he was thirsty and there was the Samaritan woman. And so here we have it again. Look at John chapter four, verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, he's talking about the water in the well, Jacob's well. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. You know, she would come, this woman would come every day uh, to the well and, and draw water from it and bring it back up the hill. And, and then she'd repeat that. 
And so it was strenuous work. And and everyone that when he when the water came and they were using it for whatever purpose, mostly drinking it, but other things as well, they would quench their thirst, but only for a short time. And she'd have to do it again. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But the Lord said to her, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. If, if whoever drinks of the water that I, Jesus, will give them shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him, in him now, a well of water springing up to what? Eternal life. This was no ordinary water. This was no ordinary water. I want you to think about that picture that Jesus drew for this woman. She, he said, first of all, drink and you'll never thirst. This water that you that I want you to drink will become, and whoever drinks it, a, in him, a well of water, a picture it springing up to eternal life. Picture that. Picture that a well of water, okay, but it's springing up. It's overflowing all the way to eternal life. It brings you to eternal life, this water, overflowing springs. And notice it was in the man. Okay. Jesus knew that he had come to bring this water and it wasn't water in an earthly well. And he knew that the people were thirsty and they were about to come go home. And he was this Messiah that they were longing for in this feast. And what happens? He couldn't hold his tongue any longer. It was time now for him to cry out to the thirsty and to say, come to me. I'm the one who can quench that deep, deep thirst that nobody else can quench. So he stood up and he cried out. Look at go back now to John chapter seven, verse thirty seven. John chapter seven, verse thirty seven. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Isaiah in chapter 55, the Lord was speaking. The Lord God now was saying, come to the waters. If anyone is thirsty, come to the waters. That's the Lord God in heaven. Yahweh saying that. Now, Jesus, on this eighth day of the feast, celebrating water, anticipating the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom that could come any moment, he stands up and he cries out. Now, in so doing, he interrupted the goings on, this, the celebration. He interrupted all of that. Now, the, now that was shocking. OK, the, the, the priests that were there, the Pharisees that were there. Now, remember, they had already gotten together and sent officers to arrest him before he did this. And now here's the great, the, the eighth day, and, and they were like, why is he getting up here and, and, and crying out? I mean, it would be in a way as if, well, this happened to me. And I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and there was one time when my father um, really, really took offense at what was being said behind that pulpit. And he stood up, and he said something, and he left. So, so that image of somebody interrupting a religious ceremony, right, that shouldn't happen in a sense, at least not in the religious framework that people would be in. Yet he did. He stood up and he cried out, knowing, by the way, full well that this was going to irritate the leadership more than more than anything. Now he was interrupting their feast, the eighth day, the most important day. In other words, he made a spectacle of himself. There were times when he did that. This was one of those times. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let him come to me and drink. Chapter 55, Isaiah speaking for the Lord says, if anyone is thirsty, come to the waters. Jesus, on the eighth day of the feast, says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He didn't say, let them come to the water and drink. What did he say? Exactly. That's exactly right. So he had the best water of all, right? He did. He had water that nobody could ever produce. 
And that's why he said, come to me. By the way, in so doing, if it was the Lord that said it in Isaiah, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and it's Jesus who's saying it here. What does that mean about Jesus? He's God. So that anybody who was perceptive enough to realize what was happening knew what he was declaring when he said what he said. Yes, he was declaring that he was the Messiah for sure, but he was also saying, I'm God. Now, he had said that before, and they didn't they didn't want to hear it. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Jewish leadership wanted to stone him for saying that. We talked about the father and he. Here we have it again. Because who provided the water when the Jews were dying of thirst in the wilderness? The Lord God. That The water in the desert? The Lord God. The early and the late rains, who brought them? The Lord God. So therefore, the waters of salvation, who brings them? The Lord God. And here, they all come, we, we now find out that they all come from Jesus, who is the Lord God. Only the thirst that he will quench now isn't the thirst of parched land. It isn't even the thirst of parched bodies. No, again, this is the thirst in a man's innermost being. It is the thirst for eternal life. The well, they needed that well of water in them that would spring up to eternal life. That was the thirst. In other words, the waters that Jesus gives are springs of salvation. Whoever believes in him will never perish, but have eternal life. Verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, that was where the thirst was, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now that's another image. I want you to think about that. A well of water springing up to eternity and then rivers of water flowing. And he had that water. And all they needed to do was drink it. Was drink it. Our springs of water are a metaphor for salvation. We saw that in Isaiah 12, 3. Guess what drinking is? It's a metaphor for believing in him. He who believes in me, he said, drink of this water. And then the next verse, he says, he who believes in me. As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He has the water. He wants to give it to them. He, 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 all they have to do is drink it. And then in them will flow rivers of living water. What an image. And then you add that to what Jesus told the woman at the well. That anyone who who receives the water that he will give, Jesus will give them, will become, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Innermost being, picture it. Rivers of living water, picture it. A well of water springing up to eternity. These are unforgettable images. But what do they signify? Well, I'd like you to turn to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. Back in Isaiah, back to an end times scripture. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3. By the way, a little commercial. We're going to be here in a couple of weeks on our Thursday evening Bible study. Matter of fact, we've already read that passage several times. As a matter of fact, one guy came up to me and said, wait a minute. What you're talking about with Jesus, that's also in Isaiah 44. And I'm like, good for you. Right. Making those connections. Connections. The Lord Jesus wished that the people that he was talking to wouldn't have made that same connection. Let's see it. By the way, they didn't. And so John had to provide the back of the, uh, the extra information in his commentary, which is verse 39. But in any event, Isaiah 44, 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. There's another image you have, you have thirsty land and the water, the Lord pours the water on it. And there's dry ground and streams will come. What's he talking about? I will pour out 
when I stop or ask questions, where usually is the answer? Thank you. No. My spirit. Let's read it. Come on, everybody. I knew you weren't paying attention. I knew you weren't really looking at Isaiah 44, 3. Let's look at it now. I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Two more images of water. And then he explains, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. You see, it would be the descendants of these people that, that, were, that were hearing this prophecy who would actually receive the water, who would actually have the, 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 the spirit being poured out on them. I will pour out my spirit. Old Testament, making that connection between water poured out and the spirit poured out. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In other words, the Lord uses water. Now, this is Old Testament, prophet Isaiah, to represent the outpouring of the Spirit when? In the last days. In the last days. This connection between water and the Spirit would be would be realized in the last days. Now, when Isaiah spoke of these last days, he didn't know that there would also be, uh, as it were, um, an interruption, an insertion into all the prophecy he gave. When, as a matter of fact, this would be fulfilled in a totally separate way by the new body he would bring in, the body of his son. Nevertheless, he this was also going to happen in the last days when Jesus comes back. Okay. Lord using water, representing the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days. Let's go back to John chapter 7, verse 39. Yeah, John had to make the connection here in verse 39. Probably most, if not all of the people that witnessed Jesus standing up and crying out didn't. So for the benefit of his readers, John connected the dots. He understood, as Jesus, of course, knew that Jesus had fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah that we're in, that we were in. So. So, in other words, there's a water that represents the outpouring of the spirit in the last days. Jesus is the Messiah, the king that will come in the last days. Jesus had fulfilled what Isaiah talked about. And that pouring out the spirit of the Lord on their offspring. And, of course, the the people that Jesus spoke with, spoke to, cried out to that they were the offspring of the people that Isaiah was talking to. My blessing on your descendants. And so because of that, John fills in the blank and makes the connection for us. Look at John 7, 39. Now, Jesus had just said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John tells us what the rivers are. Look at John 7, 39. By this, by Jesus saying that whoever believes in him from his innermost being, will flow rivers of living water. By this, those rivers of living water, which will flow from the innermost being of whoever believes in Jesus, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This outpouring of the Spirit, it wouldn't come to pass until... Jesus was glorified. But when would that happen? When would Jesus be glorified? Now, it's an interesting question because Jesus was actually glorified at specific times in his earthly life. The first time he came, he, 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 you know, his glory was revealed. He revealed his glory to his disciples and they believed in him. That was after the miracle at Cana. He certainly reveal glory, his glory to, to at certain times, miracle at Cana, also his transfiguration, which John doesn't record, but the other gospel writers do, when just before he was going to die, he brings Peter, I mean, yeah, Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and then there he was transfigured before their very eyes. They saw a glimpse of him in his glory. They saw that. Moses, Elijah were there. 
And they were talking to Jesus and and the the scriptures say that they were talking to him about what was going to happen when he would then come down the mountain and go into Jerusalem. In other words, his glory was associated with his death. His death. But when John writes, Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, he couldn't have been talking about those things, because if that was the kind of glory he meant, then they could say, well, he's already glorified. But here he says he wasn't. John says Jesus was not yet glorified. He was referring to a far greater glory, infinite glory, far greater glory than his transfiguration even or his miracles. It was a glory that would come when the father gave him the ultimate glory after Jesus had completed his mission. And he would, he's already told um, the Jews in the gospel, John, we have it recorded. He said, my, my father has sent me. And, and he, at times he even talked about, or John talked about him being the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So his mission was already starting to be revealed at that time. But when he says, John writes that the spirit wouldn't come until Jesus was glorified. He was talking about a much greater glory. And it would come when the father saw that Jesus had completed the mission that the father had given him. I'd like you to turn to the gospel of John chapter 17. This is the climax of what we call the upper room discourse. What that means is that the night before he went to the cross, Jesus had his disciples in that upper room where he had celebrated the feast of the Passover with them. And then he taught them. He taught them in in chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16. He taught them about the spirit, by the way, who would come when he would, would ascend back to his father. The spirit would come down and reveal all the things about Jesus that they couldn't handle until the spirit came the spirit would also convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment but in chapter 17 he ends his teaching and then he does something marvelous he then turns to his father and has a conversation with his father in other words he prayed and for the most part he prayed on behalf of the disciples and then those who would come after the other sheep that were of a different flock. You know, in the Gospel of John, as we proceed, and actually after chapter 12, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John are really about Israel. But chapters 13 through 17 are really about the church, although he hasn't yet revealed the church. But remember, it would be the disciples, mostly John, uh, Paul, of course, who wasn't there, who would actually be the, the, the apostles, the heralds of the church when it came. So they needed to be prepared for what was going to happen. Okay. Let's read John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Jesus spoke these things, all the teaching he had just finished, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said this, Father, the hour has come. John, you know, throughout the Gospels, particularly when people wanted to seize him, arrest him, kill him, would say they couldn't do it because Jesus' hour had not yet come. But here in chapter 17, verse 1, when he's praying, speaking to his father, he acknowledges, Father, now that the hour has come. The hour has come to do what? To glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. This was the glory that John talked about that hadn't um, that that Jesus was not yet glorified in this way. Therefore, the spirit had not yet come. This is it. He said, Father, the hour has come. Now, the hour that was about that had come was the hour when when the people that wanted to arrest him would arrest him. The people that wanted to kill him would have him killed. It was that hour. And yet what does he say in connection with that hour? Glorify your son. Glorify your son. There was something infinitely glorious about Jesus going to the cross and dying. That your son may glorify you. That also happened at the cross. The, the, The father was glorified to the max. 
also because at that moment in time, then then he everybody could see this is a public event recorded by all four gospel writers that God's justice wasn't ultimately flouted. It wasn't as if he set down the rules and the law as he did, or even gave in the consciences of people uh, the knowledge of right and wrong, and then people disobeyed that again and again and again. And some people could say, well, he's kind of looking the other way about sin, isn't he? You know, that's that's not that's not really a God of justice. What's wrong, right? Well, at this moment, when Jesus was on the cross, everybody found out what was wrong. And 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 the and the justice and the righteousness of God was revealed. His glory was revealed by his son dying on the cross. Not only that, but as Paul writes, that because of what Jesus did at the cross, God could be just and also the justifier of sinners. That's a that's a remarkable statement. We're saying that here we have a God of justice, but remember he's also a God of love. Justice is going to condemn his the human race. His love won't let that happen. We have this 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 conflict that doesn't seem to be resolvable until Jesus goes on the cross, and now as a substitute for the human race, God's justice is satisfied. All of the sins of the world are poured into the body of Jesus. Those sins were judged at the cross. He became the sin offering. God the Father condemned sin in the flesh. That's all of it. Sin in the flesh. It's sin singular, which means is the very root of our sinfulness is what he condemned at the cross. It's the moment of maximum glory for Jesus and for his father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Even as you have given him, as you gave him, authority over all flesh. He had he had authority over all flesh. He had authority to witness to them. He had authority to die for them. And, and someday he's going to have authority to judge those who refuse to believe in him but also reward those who did. You gave him authority, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, that's believers now, he may give eternal life. The waters, the rivers springing up to eternal life. And then he says a remarkable thing in verse three, an unexpected thing. When you hear eternal life, you think about never dying. Yes. When you think about eternal life, maybe you think about heaven. But here's the definition of eternal life. This now this is rock solid because not only is Jesus speaking it, not only the scriptures, but Jesus is talking to the father. And he says, this is eternal life that they may know you. If you want to know where eternal life lives, it's in knowing God. It's in knowing God, which is why he's already given us eternal life. And the way we live in that eternal life is by knowing God. Now, it doesn't mean that really doesn't mean, oh, I know God exists. What it really means, I know who God is, what God is like. In other words, so many people, for example, want to say, oh, God is unfair. He's going to judge us. All the rotten things that go on, he could have prevented and a very, as it were, negative view of God. Now, they so they never get beyond that to seeing the beautiful love of God and grace of God and forgiveness of God that's all throughout the scriptures. It's not just grace in the New Testament. It's grace to the nation of Israel. Again, in the, in the study of the prophet Isaiah, we come to a point where the Lord says, you're never going to change. You're never going to, of your own, going to come to me and repent of your sins and obey me or love me. You're just not going to do it. So he says, you know what? I have promised that this would happen. If you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it in my grace for my own sake. See, see that the grace of God, that's something that's throughout the scriptures. And it's also an expression of his love. And so and so what it means to know God is to know who he is and to have a deep abiding connection with his grace and his love, as well as his justice and righteousness. You can't forget that. That they may know you, the one true God and 
Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We're going to spend all of eternity in in this knowledge. The, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And, you know, if you look at where do I go to see the greatest descriptions of God is essential nature. Actually, in, in the, in the, it's the Old Testament that begins that. Now, Jesus is the living picture of that, too. Jesus, of course, is revealed in the New Testament. So, so the, 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 what we need to know in order to have eternal life. Now, I'm not, please, I am not talking about eternal life in heaven, being justified. I'm talking about now. Okay, we need to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's the essence of eternal life, not just in heaven, which is guaranteed, but here on earth as well. And so when you when you when you start to realize, like like Paul says, that I may come to know him, I may come to know him. Right. And and, and what the meaning of his death is right? when that when I come to know him. When I come and, and I, I participate in the Lord's Supper every month and there's a brief message about the, the significance of his death, I come to know him a little better. When I fail in life and I have to rely on scriptures like Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I come to know him a little better. It's that combination, as it were, of, of understanding the scriptures on the one hand and then going through life and then having the Holy Spirit point these things out and say, this is what this scripture means, not just the Greek, but what it means for you and your innermost being. That's eternal life, that that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse four, I glorified you on the earth. In other words, when he was on the earth, essentially he was glorifying the father. He would say that I have speaking nothing except what the father has asked me to say. I do everything according to the will of the Father. He glorified the Father on earth. And notice the next expression, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. When he had accomplished that, that was when he was going to be glorified to the max. Look at that, verse 5. Now, when would Jesus be glorified? Now. Now, when the hour had come, the night before he went to the cross, he's talking about dying. And he says, now, Father, glorify me Together with yourself, with the glory as God in the uh, Son of God, which I had with you before the world was. His hour had come now. It was time for the Father to glorify him. The very next day, Jesus would hang on a cross and die. The soldiers, they were there. They had put him on the cross and nailed him to the cross. Saw that he was dead. But, but the, but the, Centurion, the leader, when he saw everything that happened, the, the, the words that Jesus had spoken of forgiveness and love while he was suffering, the, the fact that, the, that everything turned completely dark during those three hours when he bore the sins of the world, the fact that when he died, the, the veil of the temple was torn in two. The centurion said, surely this was the son of God. He saw the glory in it. But other soldiers, most of the people there, the leaders that hated him, they were saying, now you're getting yours. All they saw on that cross was the complete humiliation of a man. The father saw unimaginable glory. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. The spirit was not yet given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Hebrews 2 9. When did God the Father glorify Jesus to the max? Hebrews 2 9. But we do see him in context, it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. He created the angels. Think of it. And for a little while he was made is becoming being born, being the slave of God, dying on the cross, being with our slave, our servant. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Notice because of the because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, this is what 
led to him being crowned with glory. The suffering of death. Why? Because of what he accomplished there. The suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, there it is. That's what that's how we need to come to know God. The grace of God. He, the innocent, might might taste death for everyone, the guilty. In other words, the father glorified Jesus when he, Jesus, died for the sin of the world. I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. Because as a follow-on to this, the God the Father glorified him as well after that, after he died on the cross. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. First Peter 1 Peter 1.20. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What did that mean? It meant he was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That God always knew that he would send his son who would become man and die. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared. The flashing forth of God. The one who explains God, Jesus, has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, human beings. In context, he's talking to the Jews who through him, through Christ, are believers in God who raised him from the dead. Now, we the gospel is that Jesus, God's son, became man, went to the cross, died for our sins, was buried. And then God, the father, raised him on the third day. He was glorified and he glorified the father in his death. But now look at this. He raised him from the dead and what? Gave him glory. More glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, quite simply, God glorified Jesus again when God raised him from the dead. Maximum glory at the cross. More glory. Glorious resurrection body. He had accomplished it all. He had risen from the dead, more glory. And then after 40 days, once Jesus had been resurrected from the dead, Jesus ascended to heaven. He left this earth. Apostles looked at him. The book of Acts chapter 1 is he went up there and like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Why are you leaving us? You're the king. Come on, right? And they wanted to know, when are you going to set up this kingdom? But he went up to heaven first. And then after that, he sat at the right hand of the father where he remains. He sat at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And you can see that in Ephesians chapter 1. We're not going there. Jesus dies, glory. Is raised from the dead, glory. And he ascends into heaven. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. That glorious position in the universe as the man, Jesus Christ, as well as God. As Timothy calls him. But then a few days after that, then, then the Spirit descends on the apostles. That's Pentecost in the book of Acts, chapter 2. But then after that, this brand new thing that nobody was ready for, nobody even had a hint that would happen, would be the church would come. The body of Christ would be formed. And because of that, we're, we're the body of Christ. Now, because of that in the church age, Now, now, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, me, every believer, indwell our hearts. So in other words, that that those springs of water leading to eternal life, the streams of water that come from our innermost being. We all have them now. Why? Because the spirit indwells each one of us in our hearts each and every believer. And I'd like you to see that as we close. And I want you to see the wording pretty carefully about this passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, which is saying something about us, which is talking about the church, the body of Christ. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us by that Jesus was talking about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. You and I have believed in him as Christians, as Christians, as that's what it means to be a Christian, to believe in Christ and then to be placed in his body. And the spirit comes to indwell each and every believer in Christ in their heart now. Again, that means that those 
springs of living water are in our hearts now. We are truly alive. And again, that spring of water goes up to eternity. The Holy Spirit is with us, overflowing all the time. And he's going to bring us spiritually. It's going to head, he's, going to, he's going to bring us through this life and then all the way to eternal life. But we can have eternal life now. In fact, we do have it. Only now, the way, the way we're, we're brought along is by the Spirit. Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Come to know God. Come to know his son, Jesus Christ. So we have that. Those springs of water are there. They're in our innermost being. Of course, you know, just as we made the decision to believe in Christ, we also understand that those springs of water are for purpose. And our purpose in this life now as believers in Christ is to come to know God, come to know Jesus. And not only that, but to then take this life and make it available to others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. The dividing wall has been broken, whether slaves or free. And notice, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Again, that connection between water and the spirit. Drinking is believing, and then the spirit indwells our hearts. Next week, we're going to see how the people at that time reacted to the words Jesus spoke on that last day, the great day of the feast. Let's close now in prayer. Father, we know that Jesus came to you on the night before he went to the cross. We know that he's at your right hand now. We know that he has told us through your word that he is there. He is our advocate. He lives now to make intercession for us. We know that, Father, that he understands what it means to be human because he is human. He was, he, he's now in a glorified body, but when he came the first time, he was as human as we are, not yet glorified, and he, but he didn't sin. And, and so we know now that he understands what it means to be human. He understands the grief. He understands the joy. He understands everything. And so he, he is the perfect high priest. So, Father, we come to you at the end today, and we know in the spiritual presence, we can see in our hearts the, our, our high priest, Jesus Christ, and the advocate. We know that the Spirit also helps us to pray when we can. And so we just thank you so much for this bounty of flowing water in our lives. And we ask that, that we would share that. We ask also, Father, that we would understand that we were baptized into the one body. We were identified now with your son, Jesus Christ, and in particular as his body. And there are other saints. We're all members of one another. <laughs> and so part of the way in which the spirit flows in our lives is for us to live in our calling, the spiritual gift he has given each one of us, and to obey the spirit, to, to understand that now our life is in, in Christ in heaven, and we have been freed up for a life of freedom in the spirit. But that includes loving one another as Jesus loved us. May we be up to the challenge. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just one more thing, and that is talked about today, the Bible study. You know, there, every book in the Bible is about Jesus. Anything that we study, we're ultimately worshiping the Lord Jesus, getting to come to know him better, getting to know God better. And we've seen the magnificent tie-ins right between isaiah today and the gospel of john so come to us on come with us on thursdays here in the next room or on skype and we'll continue to study together the prophet isaiah this thursday january 13th 6 30 in person and also on skype all right let's close with the gospel of jesus christ that again now why do i emphasize the gospel of Jesus Christ all the time. Well, because that's what the Lord calls me to do, but also so that we may have that message of eternal life at, the, at our fingertips, at, at the fingertips of our heart, so that it's just flowing out of us, that we don't have to stop and think about it. We're very unlikely to make a mistake about it. What's the gospel? That God's son became human, God in the flesh, born of a woman, and he went to the cross 
He died for the sin of the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and he was buried, a human being, buried in death. And then God the Father raised him from the dead on the third day. So that whoever believes in Christ will never perish and have eternal life. And his resurrection also guarantees that whoever believes in him will be justified. In other words, that God the Father will pronounce them righteous in his eyes forever. Father, we thank you that the gospel is so simple that all it means, all someone has to do is to see that water, hear that message, and then drink, which is believing in your son. We just pray, Father, especially in our own country, that that many, many people would come to the waters and drink. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And you're dismissed. Enjoy the day. Enjoy the Lord.